There might be a certain hypocrisy of a certain uh, Israeli elite to say, well, let's defend those Africans, but would they take them into their neighborhoods or to their homes? Hello, everyone. This is at Svi Hirschfield with another uh, episode of This Pardes Life. It is my privilege to be here with a Pardes alum. Those of you who learned of Pardes in the 1990s are going to be extremely excited that I'm here with uh, Jean-Marc Lilling, uh, who is among, also I told you he's an uh, alum of Pardes, but perhaps even more importantly, he is the executive director of CIMI, which is the Center for International Migration and Integration. Uh, although he grew up in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, did I get that right? Uh, he has been in Israel for more than 23 years. He's an Israeli citizen. He received his law training in Israel. He went to high school in Israel. So uh, even though, don't be misled by his fluent English, he is very much fully integrated into the culture and society and uh, very deeply connected to what's going on here. Uh, and it's very exciting to have him here. And we're going to be focusing on an issue uh, this issue of the status of uh, uh, immigrants uh, in Israel today, uh, foreign workers, and the whole issue that's connected with that. Uh, and we're going to hear more about it from Jean-Marc. So thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you have chosen a text for us that is going to get us saying, well, how about you tell us first a little bit about your uh, what your organization is doing uh, and why it is right now really in the headlines uh, from what I can tell, maybe not enough in the headlines. It should be in the headlines in terms of what's going on right now, and that'll lead us into the discussion. So um, uh, CIMI is an organization that was created almost 20 years ago by um, uh, by the Joint Distribution Committee. Uh, so there is some American connection to it. Um, and the idea initially was actually to look at Israel's strength in terms of migration and integration, and from there... Um, to basically create models that could be exported to the rest of the world in terms of Israel's success in terms of integration, uh, migration and integration. He has an ironic smile on his face right now, just so you should know. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, the irony is that essentially um, this isn't what happened or semi-developed uh, to be something else in the sense for as long as it was still supported by the joint, we're now completely independent. Um, it was the joint's uh, long arm, long-reaching arm in terms of uh, dealing with um, with the challenges of non-Jewish migration to Israel. Um, and we have under our care, under our attention, um, those who come and came as uh, migrant workers who came here legally to work in Israel, usually for a limited amount of time, for about five years. Um, we uh, deal with uh, um, uh, victims of trafficking. We also have a program for voluntary return and reintegration to the countries of origin for migrants who've been here for a long time and who really um, express uh, their desire to go back to their countries. And what's very hot now in the news is uh, our dealings with uh, asylum seekers and refugees from Africa. Um, where we provide care mostly in Israel's periphery, which uh, in relation to the refugees uh, relates mostly to those who are outside of Tel Aviv. By those standards, Jerusalem is also the periphery. So we're present in, um, in the Negev, in Eilat, in, um, in Jerusalem, and we have also some dealings in the north with uh, um, asylum seeker communities. So I just want to be, help uh, listeners understand, because it's, it's complex. There are foreign workers who are here, quote-unquote, legally to work, but they're not looking to stay. No. 
uh, and they have their own set of I don't issues. Know if, we're, if they're not looking to stay, but uh, we're, we're not, not looking to keep, we're not to allowing stay. them to stay. Okay, I guess uh, that's also an interesting point. Uh, there's also you mentioned migrants. There are migrants who came here legally and who overstayed their welcome and are now illegal, but again, came here legally either as work migrants or as tourists. So the work visa runs out in theory, but they would like to stay. And they stay. And and they do stay. And they become illegal, though they came in illegally. Got it. And then there's the whole category of people who the government calls infiltrators, um, all of them from Africa, who came here in the past uh, seven, eight, nine years, um, and who... Um, uh, who, in my opinion, should be looked at as asylum seekers because they come from two very tough regimes where there's war and totalitarian regimes, um, and therefore their claims of plitut, uh, of uh, refugee, of being refugees, should be taken seriously by the state. It's not the case. So there's a really a fundamental debate going on with about this group of people. What you're describing as asylum seekers, refugees who are leaving hostile, scary uh, environments where I'm assuming their lives might even be threatened, mm-hmm. and they're being, they're being defined by others, perhaps, I'm assuming the opponents, people who don't want to keep them here, as, I don't know what the term, economic refugees, or you use the term infiltrators, well, which has a... that's the term used by, by, by the state, in got fact, it. and now they're sometimes saying economic Infiltrators, economic infiltrators, with with the idea being that these people are not in danger. They they left uh, parts of Africa that are economically depressed, uh, looking for greener pastures in a first world country, and that's how they ended up in Israel. How is it on such basic an issue? There's it feels like there's a debate about facts. I don't really help us understand how is it that that very question could be debated. When I started working on these issues in 2005 as a lawyer for the UN High Commissioner for Refugees uh, here in Israel and here in Jerusalem, um, nobody knew what I was talking about when I was explaining uh, what work I was doing because the basic question was, wait, are these Africans Jewish? And then I would say, no, no, they're not Jewish. So why are they coming here? So that was the, the presumption. Israel is a country for Jews, and if they're coming here, if they're interested in to come here, they're obviously Jewish. And when they find out that they're not, then people didn't really understand why they would come to Israel. I mean, there was basic misunderstanding of, you know, in this country where we're struggling so hard, where the economy isn't so great, supposedly, um, et cetera, et cetera, why would they even come here? Um, so... In the beginning, it was very much when it wasn't a tense uh, atmosphere and when the issue basically was uh, was just at, uh, at its beginning, um, there was basically a misunderstanding about how potentially attractive Israel is to a foreigner, uh, whether it's for economic reasons or because we're only democracy in the region, uh, we're a state governed by the rule of law, even if sometimes uh, we have our problems there, but, uh, but basically we're... We're a success by any standard, um, and uh, and if only if we're speaking about asylum seekers, because we were one of the first countries to sign the Refugee Convention, uh, the UN Refugee Convention, which uh, guarantees protection to those who would seek asylum. Um, over the years, I think the government—it was mostly on the government level—that they they panicked when they saw that tens of thousands of people were coming. And it's true, there could have been million, millions potentially who would have come to Israel. And so um, we went from being, from the government policy point of view, we went from being reactive to reactionary. 
uh, and uh, and uh, the fact that a lot of these, especially the African uh, asylum seekers, the African migrants, ended up in the poorest neighborhoods of Israel, especially in South Tel Aviv, um, created first they're very visible more than if you're a Ukrainian or Georgian, of which there are also plenty who are coming to Israel, still coming to Israel from those countries, but they're visible. Um, the perception was that they come from a, from a culture which is very different from ours. As long as there were high numbers of Sudanese, especially from Darfur, I think the, the element of them being Muslims uh, added an extra element of, let's say, question, if not hostility. Um, and altogether, the government... Um, uh, again, very quickly, there was a switch from not knowing what to do to being reactionary in ways um, that do not take in consideration the specific cases or even look at the human suffering behind the departure from these countries. And largely, uh, we can say that Israeli doesn't, the society doesn't really pay attention to the personal stories, and they've been caught uh, by the government. Uh, Hasbara, or call it propaganda, uh, that, again, the semantics here are really important. If you call somebody a refugee, um, then it hits a chord with Jewish people because we were the refugees of history. There's, I think, a sense that Israel is a country that was created by refugees for refugees. So, yes, Jewish refugees, but the word refugee hits a chord. When you call somebody a mistanen, uh, an infiltrator, which refers to a law from the 1950s, which was meant to fight um, uh, infiltration by Arabs in general that were coming to uh, to perpetrate hostile acts within the newborn state of Israel, then the connotation is entirely d different. And then when you tie to that word infiltrators um, the potential crime rate, uh, that they're bringing sicknesses to Israel, et cetera, et cetera, um, we come to a place that is stigmatizing and even inciting to violence potentially against these people. Uh, definitely isn't about inviting them to talk with you or to even uh, help uh, help them. And if I understand you correctly, these people have a strong legal claim that they indeed are refugees and not economic migrants just looking to, so for a better the job. The overwhelming majority of those that have come from Africa are from Eritrea and Sudan, and the Sudanese here are from Darfur. Um, in other countries, uh, the rate of recognition of people who take uh, their claim seriously is average in, in Europe and, and, and North America, especially in Canada. Canada is very generous, um, is an average of 85% uh, recognition rate. Um, in Israel, we've actually recognized through um, individual procedure of recognition 11 people out of about 40,000. Um, so the, the, the percentage of recognition is so ridiculously low that here one has to point to the complete dysfunction of the system as it's applied in Israel. Um, and uh, I think a pretty obvious unwillingness to recognize everyone. The fear, I think, of government, uh, of the government officials and um, and policymakers, is basically that if we recognize one person, we open the door to potential potential tens of thousands more. Um, and uh, that fear is not entirely. Um, I would say it's exaggerated, but it's not baseless. Um, and then comes the question of, you know, 
I think Israeli society is obsessed by demography. Um, it's always mentioned how many we're, we're obsessively counting Jews constantly in this country. Um, you know, it comes up uh, uh, every Yom Ma'ut and every Rosh Hashanah. How many people made Aliyah? How many people left? Uh, and what's the what's the fertility rate? And et cetera, et cetera. So we're obsessed with uh, with demography, as if the only question that we have to ask ourselves about whether we're a Jewish state is how many Jews are here, whether we're. 85%, 80%, 75% or whatever. Um, and never, never is the question being asked, what are the underlying Jewish values in this country that would guide our relationship to non-Jews? So I think we should then turn, I think you've, in a very articulate way, have shown us where you see the system is not functioning. And I guess the question, of course, on us to turn is how you would like the system to function, uh, even level of what questions we're asking, what we're grappling with, uh, what our values are, and uh, what I've challenged you to do today, in which uh, by your readiness and eagerness is showing me that you've thought a lot about this question. This is not your first time thinking about it. So we're going to look at a text that you chose that you feel informs, or at least in part, uh, your thinking about how a Jewish state should react. So we're, let's turn now to that text, and we'll talk a little bit about what your vision for ideally how you would like a Jewish state. If not demography, what should we be talking about when we're looking at this issue? So what text did you choose for us today? So um, I chose the text from uh, Baba Matsia, which uh, follows what probably every Parday student uh, studied. We hope. Um, it's, it follows up to that, um, and it basically is about um, in what, what in Hebrew is called Isur Onata Ger, uh, which is translated in this text as the one who wounds, or the, 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 that it's forbidden to wound the feelings of the proselyte. Um, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, that um, uh, for me it's one of the questions, I mean, I deal in, in policymaking on an everyday level uh, about immigration, and I think that the questions of immigration raise question everywhere, um, not only in Israel, about identity. At the end of the day, uh, having a migrant in front of us uh, or being threatened by potential, potentially hundreds uh, or millions of migrants coming to your country raises questions of identity. Who am I? Who are we as a, as a, as a, as a society, as a country? And who do we want to be? Um, and therefore, the the question of how we look at the stranger uh, at the ger in this uh, in this sense, and I'm not sure that uh, you know there are different ways to look at these issues and to but but it's also about creating a Jewish vocabulary that will enable enable us to think about these issues about the issues of of the non-Jewish migrant and how to relate to them. So I know that uh, ger can be the ger tzedek the the basically. The person who converts uh, and who becomes completely part of us, and ger is sometimes uh, ger toshav uh, can be related as a ger toshav, who's basically the person who lives with us. I'm not an expert in uh, in uh, in these questions. I'm from the from a Talmudic point of view, um, and but but when I see ger, as far as I'm I'm uh, I, I I relate to the stranger, and I, for that that's relevant to me. Um, and the text basically. Um, Speaks about uh, 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 the, the the that it's forbidden to to hear wound the feelings of the proselyte. I don't know that that's how I would have translated 
honaa. Uh, it's you can do you can do wrong. You can um, basically honaa is also a type of lie in a way, presenting a wrong a wrong image of yourself to uh, to to whoever you're dealing with. Um, so it's uh, in 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 Hebrew we currently use uh, in 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 legal uh, Hebrew we use the term matzag shav. Um, as being a form of honah, I don't know how to you translate that into. I guess like a, a false, uh, 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 presenting yourself falsely. I guess is how we would say that right. some kind of misleading or false representation. I guess is the term that we right. use. And in that context, I'll I'll say already that is Israel presenting itself as a democracy and as a Jewish state, and not asking itself the questions of what our relationship to the stranger should be. Is that a form of honaa? Um, uh, but but we'll we'll go with the text as it's written here, okay. and uh, we can develop later. Um, the thing that that is interesting to me is basically basically there it says that uh, there there is a transgression of the one who uh, wrongs uh, who wounds the feelings of the proselyte or of the ger um, in three dif- different ways. And I don't want to go into the, the details because the, the, the text is actually a bit obscure. They, they, they account uh, uh, about how one, what, where is the wrong, uh, uh, where does the wrong come from? Um, but basically, I think what the text does is look at the way that, um, uh, for why can we say that it is wrong to to hurt the feelings of the of the gay of the stranger? I mean, when you're su- suggesting, I'll just for the people listening, the text sort of begins with this question of wh- what is the source of the, this transgression. It actually, says, well, actually, it's three transgressions. In theory, every time I harm a gay, I've actually violated three pro- uh, three prohibitions. Uh, and I guess what you're about to share with us is this is not only a counting up, it's not just math, but in each of these prohibitions, we're learning something about the way in which we cause harm and why not to do it. Right, exactly. So the first category, um, in a way, it's more uh, it's more um, remez. Uh, uh, an illusion, a an hint. An illusion, a hint to it, but basically says it's because gerim ainu beretz mitzrayim, or aitem beretz mitzrayim, because we were strangers in Egypt, which is the classic. Everybody, you know, always says how it's mentioned. Uh, what is it, thirty-six times that we were gerim beretz mitzrayim, um, and that's a very significant thing, and that we should uh, care. I find, in a way, for me, it's the least convincing. Uh, for me, it's the the least convincing argument, because um, don't do unto the other what was done to you. For me, is uh, at least when you're in a sovereign state where we can take responsibility for ourselves. And as far as I'm concerned, the great revolution of Zionism and the modern state of Israel is that we can finally take responsibility. So. If we only look at our own history and how we were hurt by history um, and being persecuted all over the world, well, obviously it it, it hits a, a chord, a very sensitive nerve, which we should we should care about. But I think um, if we want to create a state that is um, based on ethical um, uh, measure uh, of how it should treat the other, it can't only be because of our own history. So it doesn't go far enough. I don't think it goes far enough, but it's. I think it's a reminder, uh, an important reminder. And I think it expands it. We weren't converts in Egypt. Yeah. So the, at least the pshat, the simple reading of the text, tells us that the ger is not the convert. Right. The rabbis will forgive me. I'm only talking about the pshat. I don't want the <laughs> rabbinu calling my home. But uh, that the ger really is the other. 
and uh, I actually am, uh, I think, more connected than, than, than you are to this verse, this idea that, uh, especially now that we're living in a sovereign state of Israel, where uh, we don't get the experience of being the other too often, we're the majority, we're a Jewish majority, that reminding ourselves that being the other is a very real uh, thing, uh, and a potentially dangerous thing. We yeah. suffered because we were the other. It started out great, and then it, it took a turn, and so uh, I think it's powerful. But let's go on well, to the I'll, other I'll just two. say, yeah. I'll make an aside relating to that in the current debate right now, and there is finally a reaction uh, with the planned expulsion of, uh, of asylum seekers, massive expulsion that is planned for the coming months. Um, there, is, uh, there is a reaction, and a lot of people are using uh, language related to the Shoah. And that's creating a counter-reaction from a lot of people who say, that's going too far. You can't compare. And I was interviewed, actually, on radio um, yesterday about this. And I said, it's one thing to compare the plight of asylum seekers uh, in Israel or, um, or, uh, or even back in their countries of origin um, to the Shoah. And I think that might be going too far, or I actually will say it is going too far. I think what most people who are using the Shoah analogies are saying is that if we suffered, we, ha- we should have particular sensitivity and understanding about the plight of people who might be sent to very dangerous situations or basically deported to very dangerous situations should they be uh, deported in the coming months. So again, it's not about comparing to the Shoah, but it's about pointing the finger to what the expectation that we have Higher standards because we understand something. We should about, have some empathy. Yes, empathy, empathy, and we understand something about persecution and about being the strangers, the strangers in a strange land. Beautiful. Um, so the second category basically says something which I find really interesting and which is obviously midrashic in in nature. And I love midrash. It's uh, maybe what I loved the most when I was studying at Pardes. Um, uh, is basically says that the ger is somebody that you live with. Shegar itcha. So they, they, they use, they use the, 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 the word of ger uh, and, and with, the, with the Hebrew. Chiyagur itcha. Chiyagur itcha. Uh, basically, the person who will live with you, basically in close proximity, uh, which I think is exactly the opposite of the reaction um, of most uh, Israelis today to, to the strangers. Um, there's a certain hypocrisy of those that say, well, first of all, the government was the one uh, to bring them to South Tel Aviv in massive numbers. It wasn't, they didn't choose to be in South Tel Aviv, and they settled there because it was the poorest neighborhoods where they could actually find apartments. Um, and there might be a certain hypocrisy of a certain uh, Israeli elite um, to say, well, let's defend the, 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 uh, the, the, those Africans, but would they take them into their neighborhoods or to their homes? Um, but at the end of the day, the stranger is somebody who lives in your midst. Well, let's pursue that for a second, because that is something that's thrown around out there, that the, uh, where people say, yes, it's the, uh, the well-off intellectual elite that's pointing the moral finger, but it's actually the poor Jews who, have to, who are living in these neighborhoods with uh, the asylum seekers or migrant workers as their neighbors— uh, and they don't, and maybe some don't want them there. And uh, what do we do with that? How do we respond to that? First of all, 
in terms of policy, it's clear to me that it's not the poor residents of Israeli residents, Jewish residents of South Tel Aviv, who have to bear the all of the, the of uh, the yoke. weight, the yoke of uh, tens of thousands of people who've come without any money, without any means uh, of survival. Um, and uh, they've seen their neighborhoods transformed, literally transformed. And I don't think any one of us uh, uh, would like our, our neighborhoods to be transformed in the way that the residents of South Tel Aviv have seen their, their, neighbor, their, neighbors, uh, their neighborhoods transformed. Not to mention that these were already some of the most vulnerable neighborhoods in Israel and in Tel Aviv especially. Um, and uh, so there's a real social tension. But I think this uh, argument about saying that the ger is is specifically a social comment about looking at the ger as somebody that lives in close proximity to you. And what does one do? What is one's responsibility to the person who lives on the same street as me or the person who lives, you know, just within close proximity? What does it entail? And here, there's clearly a, call it social, call it uh, uh, proper governance, policymaking. There's something to be said about the, the local, you know, munis- municipal level of how do we take these, these uh, people in and how do we potentially make them um, live all over the country and have richer neighborhoods or richer cities also take them in and take responsibility. Again, here in the Israeli context, it's clear that it's the government that sort of pushed them to go to the south of Tel Aviv, literally taking them from the border to the south of Tel Aviv. It's the area around the central bus station in Jerusalem, which is sort of the Ellis Island of the country. And so when they came out of the central bus station, they went to the Lower East Side, which is the area of, of, of south Tel Aviv. But in terms of responsibility, what is par- proper policymaking in terms of where these people um, and what are the means um, brought to the table so that everyone, they're not considered a, a stranger, but there is somebody that we have a certain amount of responsibility to because they live in the same neighborhood as we do. And that's enough of a claim. They don't have to look like us, speak our language, pray the way we pray. If they live on my street... The Torah is telling me I have some responsibility for them. Maybe they also have a responsibility for me, but we are in society together in spite of all those things we don't share. By the way, one of the things, I I take a lot of groups to South Tel Aviv, and I teach about this uh, in numerous places. And very often the argument, sort of the counter-argument from a Jewish point of view that that is brought to the table is, uh, the poor, you know, you have to take care of the poor of your city first, uh, give priority to the poor of your city. And in an interview recently, I was also asked, somebody cited this, and I said, excuse me, I didn't uh, hear that this text says the, the Jewish poor of your city come first. And especially in a, in, a, in a modern Jewish state, a sovereign Jewish state, the poor of your city come first. Here I can be quite literal and look at it. And uh, if you know this sugiya was dealt with in in a situation where probably in the in the shtetls or the Jewish communities, then there is some sense that the Jewish of uh, the the Jewish poor of your community come first. But the text in the current Israeli reality, as far as I'm concerned, the the poor of your city come first. The difference is, city doesn't just mean you're the people who are like you, but quite literally the people who live in your city. Exactly. Okay, and in the third one, we're going to talk about uh, the Lotonu Ish et Amito. Et Amito, uh, which, uh, which basically 
it's, it basically says the ger is an amit, which, uh, which can be translated in different ways. Uh, but in, in modern Hebrew, amit is basically a friend. Um, basically sees the human nature and the possibility for a real relationship with the ger as an amit, as a friend or as, a, as a, uh, somebody, who, uh, actually a Pardes teacher, Avital Hochstein, once said that amit um, uh, comes, uh, the root is im, Mm-hmm. That with it, we, who is with you, um, and then we also had a whole discussion at that point whether also we should look as uh, at, at the word amit also as uh, the term lit amet or imut, which is struggle, to struggle conflict, with, yeah, to be in conflict with. But uh, but if we take the amit, the word amit, um, then it's literally putting the 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 ger is not only a neighbor, somebody who lives on your street, he's a friend or potentially. Somebody it, it humanizes the ger. All of a sudden, he's and and it's and it's so simple. The way that it's expressed is amitohu. You know that this is uh, this is who he is. Um, and don't ever forget. I hear from this text. Don't ever forget that the ger, who you might see as a threatening stranger, well, he's actually an amit. Um, and I think that's beautiful. And it's it's so simple in a way. And it's so human. And it's so um, sensitive. To the nature of uh, its sort of understanding of almost the, the the human nature that would consider a stranger a ger as a threat, and say, well, before you see a threat, see somebody who's with you, a human being, a human being, somebody who's with you, and somebody who you could actually build a life with. So I want to ask you a question. It's an unfair question because it's like attacking you from. Both sides. Uh, I imagine some are going to say, well, it's very nice you like to learn Midrash and Talmud, and you're this very well-educated Jew, but we're talking about policy in the 21st century of a modern Western state and economy, and you know, what role do we really want to look at these texts? That we really want Bab Metzia 59B to, to be part of our decision-making process? And then from the other side, you ready? I told you I was going to be very unfair. If this is indeed, these are Jewish values that are rooted in Jewish texts, how come uh, there are not thousands of rabbis? You know, we have a lot of rabbis in this country. I don't know if you've noticed, but boy, especially in Jerusalem. I imagine but you live in Jerusalem, is that correct? Yes. I bet you'll pass a few of them on your way home, and you live, I think you live like about 10 blocks from here, if I'm not mistaken. Where are the rabbis? If, if, the Jew, if this is an authentic reading of Jewish texts, why isn't uh, why doesn't why isn't Simi inundated with rabbinic volunteers who want to support you with Torah? Well, I'll say from a, which one do you want to answer first? Um, oh, there's so many things to to say to both. Um, the wheels are churning. He's thought about these questions too. I guarantee. <laughs> um, let's start with the first. Okay. Um, this is asking the modern, professionally trained lawyer. Uh, university trained, knows how to speak the, the modern language of law and public policy. What role, really, Jewish texts, the, the Talmud, 2,000-year-old texts, play a role here for you? So I'll, I'll go back to I, a few years ago, a number of years ago, actually, I was uh, among the first cohort, uh, Rabbi, the organization Rabbis for Human Rights organized mm. the Beit Midrash, Les Chuyot Adam, uh, uh, to deal with human rights question. Um, and I was among the first cohort. And it was fascinating because I think we had many different 
rabbis or from all the different movements, uh, from reform to conservative to uh, orthodox. Um, I'll say something which maybe will not be taken well, but I found the orthodox people who came to us the most interesting because they were actually reading the text. I felt that sometimes the reform rabbis who came to, 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 to speak to us wanted to plug the term human rights into Judaism. And my conclusion out of a year of studying in this Beit Midrash was that I'm not sure that Judaism speaks about human rights. I think what Judaism speaks about is something which is a nuance of that. It speaks about kvod adam. It speaks about human The dignity, dignity. of human dignity. Um, and ultimately, human dignity can lead us to similar results, but I think human dignity places responsibility upon the community, whatever it might be, to allow for every member, or even people who are outside of that membership, of membership of that community, to feel that they are dignified individuals, dignified human beings. Um, whereas, in my understanding, I think human rights is a, is a modern term, um, which basically is where every individual can claim for himself the rights. It has nothing to say about responsibility for the other. Um, and I think that, uh, I mean, uh, the, the, the amazing uh, um, jurist uh, Robert Cover at the time wrote something about, about, this, about this concept. Um, and and uh, if I look at the modern Jewish reality in Israel, I think it's very much about taking responsibility for all Toshvei Eretz Israel, all of them, all the residents of the country, all the residents of the of the country. Um, and and uh, if we came back to Eretz Israel, we we have to take care and we have to care about all the inhabitants of Eretz Israel. Um, so so that's one first thing. In that sense, I think it's really, really important to, to use Jewish text and to find a Jewish and a Hebrew language to deal and to enable us to, um, to think about reality. I think semantics are really, really important. I think lawyers have a problem. They sometimes think that laws create reality. I usually think that society creates the laws more than, more, more than the, the opposite. But I think my legal training has taught me that words, vocabulary, semantics are really, really important. And I think that sensitivity to words comes largely from Jewish, from Jewish study. Uh, being in the Beit Midrash, it's all about semantics, or so much of it is about semantics and how words can create a reality. So... I think it's our duty. We're still very young as a, as a Jewish country, uh, as the state of Israel, and and in our and if we call ourselves a Jewish state, to create this vocabulary from Jewish texts to think about how we're different. We're not just yet another Western democracy. I think if the the state of Israel created a unique opportunity to say we have something more to give to the world to ourselves definitely, but even to the world. And I think an emphasis, for example, on kvod adam, human, human dignity human. rather than human rights, um, is something unique that we can give to the world and to ourselves. So first of all, I think Jewish texts bring a different sensitivity, even when we're treating questions similar to what Western democracies are dealing with. So that's, that's one basic thing, again, Maybe we're still in the midst of creating all that, and it's not just an intellectual, you know, or or uh, 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 
or somebody who's very educated. It's not a pose. It's, 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 it's really taking, do we take our text seriously? Uh, in general, I'm saying every walks of life and, and everything that we do in the Jewish state, do we take our texts seriously? So this is great. What I'm hearing from you is as, you know, Zionism is not just about creating a political democratic entity where Jews can run to or, or live in, but we want to create a Jewish state that's infused with our values, our texts, our language. Uh, we don't want to just be a, a copy of either Europe or the United States. We have something unique as Jews in a Jewish culture to create here that's actually rooted very much in Judaism and Jewish texts. This sounds like a great a speech I could have heard of B'nai Akiva at, a, at, a, at a, a religious Zionist youth group. So where are the religious Zionists? You're speaking their language. Why aren't they joining you? First of all, unfortunately, the issue of migrants in Israel, and especially uh, the stigmatization and calling them uh, infiltrators, has transformed this issue into a left-wing, right-wing issue, where when I, when I speak about it as a Jewish issue, I think people come to it in a completely different manner. So, um, But I'm not sure that our politicians are the most deep... Um, and thinking individuals and Israeli politics are tough and often quite violent, at least on a on a on a Ling linguistic, linguistic level point of view. Um, and uh, and I was just the other day at the commission in the Knesset on these issues, and it was just you couldn't take these seriously. The level of the level of language and uh, um, uh, there needs to be deep thinking and deep reflection. I must say I'm disappointed by the rabbis who haven't really tried to think about these issues. Um, but, you know, very often uh, I, I had the privilege of uh, studying with uh, Rabbi Menachem Froman, who sometimes was obscure, um, very hard to understand. But there were things that he would say that were really about dealing with the reality as it is. And that's the challenge of Judaism today. Look at reality straight in the face and deal. And we have resources and a culture and, um, uh, that, that allows us to look at reality with a lot of courage and a lot of creativity also. I mean, Rabbi, Rabbi Froman was so inventive and so creative in ways that were also threatening to some of his fellow rabbis. Um, I was, you know, I had the luck of having great teachers, including uh, uh, Rabbi Hartman, David Hartman, um, uh, who were, you know, who were brave. They looked at texts, and they were inspired by texts, but they looked at reality straight in the eye. Um, I would say that in current Israeli reality, um, it's, uh, it's, um, it's interesting. Israeli society is often, is very often in denial about how deeply imbued with Jewish culture it is. Um, and I can refer to, uh, you know, the, the protest of 2011, the summer of 2011. Um, and if you would go down, uh, Rothschild Boulevard where there were all the tents, all the references were from, uh, the Tanakh, one of the ones of the of the slogans that stands out in my head was "Ki avadim ainu be'eretz Israel." You know, we were slaves in the land of Israel, Israel. as opposed to the land of Egypt. Exactly. A very so, ironic. So, and 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 it was full of that. If you looked at the uh, of the you know the slogans that were out there, and and you know, 
again, we're in denial about it, but this is actually deeply a deeply Jewish country and deeply Jewish culturally. It's very, very present, even among the most uh, the most secular who say, you know, that they're. I mean, who who would speak out against uh, uh, the settlers and the Haredim and the and the and the and the religious in general. They're actually constantly using Jewish references to to strengthen their claims. So this is the positive the positive uh, thing. Deep thinking about Jewish texts and how they influence our lives or how reality is interpreted through the lens of Jewish texts. It's true. It's not it's not common, and more often than not, by non orthodox rabbis. I mean, I think the person who is speaking out. Um, most prophetically about these and other issues is uh, Rabat Tamar Elad Applebaum, who is deeply, deeply, you know, knowledgeable and inspired by Jewish texts, and uses it to inspire people to live a Jewish reality here in Israel. Um, um, but maybe we're now in a, in a period of real. Um, emergency of real mashber, uh, crisis. crisis. Um, maybe out of this crisis, they'll be often out of crisis. I mean, it's a very Hasidic uh, thought, but sometimes you need to go deep into the crisis to be able to come up again uh, with new inspiration and new creativity. Well, Rav Cook imagined uh, a new Torah would emerge from our experience of living in this land and ultimately having sovereignty. Uh, I'm getting a little impatient waiting for it. Because uh, I don't think it's emerging, at least not at the pace that uh, we would require. But uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's these type of opportunities. Unfortunately, maybe these type of crises are what move will prompt us to move forward. So let me ask you one one final question: What would you want anybody hearing this or hearing about what you do? What can they do? What would you like them to do to get involved to to make their voice heard to try to move this process? in a different direction than where it seems to be headed right now? Well, I'll say, um, especially if you know many of the people who listen to this are Pardes students and who were given the opportunity to study in a Beit Midrash and take texts seriously, but also to be challenged by Jewish texts. Um, I've been studying Midrash with, uh, with a Chavruta for the past 15 years. We study Midrash Rabbah. And we are amazed, uh, Ariel, my, my, my Chavruta and I, on a regular basis, amazed, and sometimes we actually laugh out loud of how far-fetched the Chachamim um, use words or make the text say what they want it to say um, because basically their ethical understanding is that this is what the text should be saying and these should be the values of Judaism or whatever issue they're discussing. Um, and, and I think it's, it's daring, it's chutzpah. I mean, I love Midrash because it's so chutzpahdik. Like you, 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 wanna, I mean, you really want to say to these chachamim if they were in front of you, come on, you're kidding me. Of course the text doesn't say that. Um, but I think it's on one hand to take Jewish texts uh, and Jewish culture seriously. And to take Jewish history seriously. I mean, to say, honestly, yes, there are challenges. Yes, we can be scared. Yes, we're in a country that is still um, threatened from all sides. And I think we're the only country in the world where Israelis, when they speak to each other, say, you know what? We might not be here another 50 years from now. I mean, I, I don't know of any other Western country where it's where we always feel that we're, we're on the edge of an abyss. Mm. Um, but here I feel that with, with regards to these issues, we might be on the edge of a moral abyss, uh, not on a survival abyss. And 
to take our texts and our culture seriously, and at the same time to be daring in the way that the Chachamim uh, were in the text of the Midrash and in always, we were always a very daring people and that we're able to create um, out of very desperate realities to create perspective that were about life. I think if there's any emphasis um, in all Jewish texts, it's about justice and it's about life. And uh, we should take that tradition very seriously and apply it to ourselves um, with utmost seriousness and care. Obviously, it requires sensitivity. Uh, it's not about opening the floodgates of all migrants who wants to be in Israel because we're such a success. It's not about that. But uh, there's the call of the hour, definitely now, in the coming months, with, with regards to, to those that the government would like to, um, to deport um, and probably send to very dangerous uh, or life-threatening situations. And uh, I think this is the call of the hour, and I think only a Jewish reading of this situation can um, make us prevail and uh, behave in the way that I think uh, that I think Jewish history expects from us. So maybe a Jewish reading that's rooted in uh, chutzpah and optimism and uh, belief and trust in our own culture and not in fear, mm-hmm. which maybe we're reading too many of our texts these days with through the lenses of fear uh, and not with uh, optimism and with hope. Uh, I want to thank you very much. I've learned a lot. Uh, I am very inspired by your work. Uh, I wish you, and I, I know everybody listening wishes you a lot of success and kola kavod for uh, giving your life to this. And uh, it's a very important role model. And thank you so much for your time today. And uh, hopefully the news will improve uh, from your perspective and from our perspective, I would say, as we go forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. This Pardes Life is an original podcast production from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, please visit www.elmad.pardes.org. E-L-M-A-D.pardes.org.